sit rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. This week, how can cutting forces pensions honour Britain's debt to its military? A 27-year-old corporal who has lost both his legs in a bomb blast in Afghanistan will miss out on £500,000. And is it time to stop the military recruiting 16-year-olds? Someone who's legally still a child cannot reasonably be expected to make the kind of commitment and sacrifice that an armed forces career entails. Headlines. have dominated domestic politics since the coalition government was formed eight months ago. But concerns growing about the impact those cuts will have on former members of the armed forces and their relatives. The government's decided to change the way pension increases are calculated in future. Rather than being linked to the retail price index, they'll follow a different measure of inflation, the consumer price index, which is usually a lot lower. It means that from April, pensions will go up by 3.1%. Before this change, that increase would have been 4.6. The Shadow Defence Secretary Jim Murphy has told MPs the cuts are heartless, and he said in particular they will affect forces' pensions, which are often claimed at a far earlier age, and by people who've suffered terrible injuries. A 27-year-old corporal who has lost both his legs in a bomb blast in Afghanistan will miss out on £500,000 in pension and benefit-related payments. War widows will also lose out enormously. A 34-year-old wife of a staff sergeant killed in Afghanistan would be almost £750,000 over their life worse off. The impact of these measures will be felt long after the deficit has been paid down and when the economy has returned to growth. Well, British Forces News Welfare correspondent Sue Kinnear is with me in the studio. Hello, Sue. And on the line is Major General John Morbick, General Secretary of the Forces Pension Society. Uh, Major General Morbick, uh, you say these changes to pensions will potentially affect forces personnel harder than other public sector's workers. Why, why is that? Well, Kate, you haven't really left me anything to say. Jim Murphy summed it up very well. And, uh, and, and uh, you also, in your introduction, said it precisely. It's because pensions are drawn by many service people at a much earlier age than in the rest of the public sector, either through widowhood or invalidity, or most people leave after honourable service in the age of, say, early middle age, age about 40. 
And the cumulative loss happens over a longer period of pension paying over their lifetime. And that's why the armed forces are so very different. So do you think this move will ultimately be a breach of the military covenant? Well, it's not the only move that's happened. There are quite a lot of other things that have happened in the uh, uh, tenure of this, this government. Um, they have uh, thrown aside the level of agreement we had on widows' pensions. Um, so that's for widows who lose their pensions on cohabitation and remarriage. And they've changed the rules on uh, income tax allowance for pension contributions, which will affect more senior officers. Now, they're, they're, that um, may be only for senior officers, but they haven't thought about the rules before they brought them in. And all those things together are a clear breach of the spirit of the, uh, of the covenant and the unique nature of military service, which is the commonly accepted concept underlying the covenant. Uh, Sukhanir, ministers are presumably aware of the impact these changes will have. What, what are they saying exactly? Well, they can't fail to be aware. There's an impressive roll call of growing number of names of people protesting about it. The Forces Pension Society have had a long and vociferous uh, campaign now. And, of course, uh, Shadow Defence Secretary Jim Murphy savaged uh, the plans in the Commons this week, saying the armed forces should be a special case. And, interestingly enough, perhaps the most significant uh, warning they've had that uh, this is not going down well came in a gentle way, albeit, in Lord Hutton's interim report. He's the former Labour Defence Secretary appointed by the government to do an independent review of pensions. And he said and, and intimated that perhaps the armed forces should be a, a special case. Uh, and he could clearly see that if these changes and the shift from uh, uh, RPI to CPI goes ahead, then the injured and the widows will be getting lower payments. So, yes, ministers have to be very well aware of the impact these changes will have. Major General John Moore. Um, a special case then. What other arguments can you put forward to make the well, military a special a, a case? A special case is one way of putting it, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't put it as a special case. We wouldn't put it as special pleading. We would say it is fairness born out of the concept of the unique nature of military service. Military service demands many things of service people and their families that other forms of employment and public service doesn't demand. What we're looking for is fairness, having due regard to the lifestyles and sacrifice required of military people. Chris, so I don't think it's special pleading at all. Uh, and they, although they might be, uh, you know, Lord Hutton might have said there are special circumstances, uh, we're looking for fairness here. Christopher Lee is our defence analyst, and he joins us in the studio as well. Uh, Christopher, hi. Um, you'd agree with that, I presume? Up to a point, Lord Cocker. Um, I tell you, ask you a point, General. Um, there are two aspects here, aren't there? One is, the, is Lord Hutton's opinion and how it's developing and how it might develop in the future. We could actually get to a point where the uh, pension deficits and the pension reductions, as you see them, will apply to new pensions. The second thing is public opinion. Now, there is absolutely no doubt and lie in the streets of Wooden Bassett, and you'll see there is no doubt, of the general public's attitude towards uh, the services, especially in times of war. But not every person that claims pension is a w war widow. Absolutely not right. every person Absolutely has been right. terribly wounded. Yeah. And I think the general public, especially after, let's say, 2014, when the combat role in Afghanistan finishes, I don't think this, will, this, this campaign to stop these reductions will fetch much public support. I'm talking to Christopher now, aren't I? Yes, Christopher Lee. Uh, well, I'm, I have to say that um, Christopher's abs absolutely right. And the case is made for public service pensioners as a whole 
by the trade unions and by organized labor. But nobody speaks for the armed forces. Now, there are things the government has done too quickly. The Office for National Statistics and the Royal Statistical Society, with whom we work, say that the consumer price index is not fit for purpose as a measure of inflation. But it may be in a couple of years' time, because there is a program of work to revamp uh, CPI to get it so that it is a fair measure of inflation. And we want to make sure the government keeps to that program of work. I'm sure this is a subject we'll return to. Uh, Major General Morbick, stay with us for the moment, though, because the debate about changes to service pensions emerged as the government gave more details of the Armed Forces Bill. It's published every five years, setting out the terms under which Britain's military operates. And the Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, says a move to place the military covenant on a legal footing is at the centre of this new legislation. The Armed Forces Covenant is fundamentally a moral obligation on the government on the nation and on the armed forces themselves. It is an agreement between the armed forces and the whole nation, not just the government. Generally, the people of this country know how service personnel should be treated, and our task is to create the right framework for that to happen. But critics say the MOD is, in fact, politicising the military covenant by planning to scrap an independent review of how well ministers are honouring the nation's pact with servicemen and women. Uh, Sue Kinnear, how is this assessment done at the moment exactly? Well, uh, the last government set up an external reference group, uh, an independent body, to uh, report on the state of armed forces, uh, families' lives, uh, how they were performing. Um, it, it is completely independent independent and it reports annually and once every five years uh, in line with the service command paper and they're expected to produce a a longer five-year report and to do that these uh, the body uh, liaises with charities welfare groups and of course the families federations uh, and various other peoples from all walks of life Um, and the the sort of things they're looking at is the impacts of education uh, mortgages recently it was thrown up that um, through liaising with these organisations that uh, service families have problems getting mortgages, so what help could be given to them. So it's very much and has been an independent uh, panel of experts that reports on the state of life uh, for our service families. So, Christopher, um, if these changes go ahead, it implies the MOD will be in charge of deciding whether it's doing a good job internally itself. Uh, Given its track record on procurement, um, it's not very hopeful, really, is it? Always make a cock of it, don't they? (laughs) But but these cock-ups actually do come out. Don't forget, we've still got... But sometimes years later, that's the problem, isn't it? Well, less and less now. We've now got, for example, House of Commons Defence Committee, the Public Affairs, uh, Public Accounts Committee, and the Public Administration Committee, under the guidance of an ex- Commons Defence Select Committee uh, member Bernard Jenkins, they are all making beads towards the MOD, and they're starting to strip back everything that they're doing and looking at it far more vociferously than, uh, or vigorously than, than ever before. And don't forget, by taking these things in-house, the MOD becomes vulnerable to the accusation month after month or week after week. So in effectively the there Commons. could be more scrutiny, could they, if it there goes could be, A, there could be more scrutiny, and also the MOD could be accused of actually trying to cover things up. And that's where they're most vulnerable, and that's where they always fall down because they never answer uh, specifically and therefore not fully. Major General Morbick, how effective do you think the external reference group has been so far? And Do you think it's a good idea that it goes in-house? Uh, I certainly don't think it's a good thing to go in-house. I think the external reference group should be widened, and the concept of what it should look at 
should be widened. For example, uh, we failed to get any of the uh, clearly needed pension issues into the service personnel command paper, and we got timed out by the general election on things like widows' pensions. But it can't just be that the Excel reference groups look, look at, look, looks at one chapter of life. There must be items coming in, items going out. It must be flexible, and it certainly doesn't want to be in-house. So how do you see this developing exactly, Christopher? People will start looking back, and I know there's a committee going to look at it next week. Do you remember the, uh, uh, I bet they put up the, uh, uh, the salary of, or, or the wages of, of the general at one time, the Armed Forces Pay Review Board, and they're going to be looking back that as an example of how something actually can work. And it worked very well, and government is therefore committed to accepting the review board's uh, when they were external boards, and that is far better than having it in-house. Uh, and so, I mean, the MOD is, is committed, though, to... It says it's committed to independent scrutiny, and the Defence Secretary will have to report each year, won't, won't he? Um, yes, he will. Do you think that mechanism will satisfy people? Well, judging by the, the outcry and protests that we're here, uh, hearing already, um, I think it, ministers are going to have to work very, very, very hard, uh, is one quote that I read from... Uh, from a concerned uh, member of the British Legion. Ministers are going to have to work very, very hard to convince uh, people that they can do the job as well uh, as uh, independent experts who know uh, precisely their field and aren't tied into any political organisation and indeed the welfare organisations who are working uh, very hard. And it seems to be accepted they're doing reasonably well on the external reference group at, at the moment. All right, our welfare correspondent Sue Kinnear and Major General John Big from the Forces Pension Society. Thanks for your time today. Sit Rep with Coming up, why is the MOD trying to keep parts of its controversial aircraft carrier deal secret? And how Britain's preparing to launch its own cyber attacks. A 16-year-old cannot vote, cannot buy a drink or go to see a violent film in the cinema. But they can join the armed forces if their parents agree. And that puts the UK in a small group of nations still recruiting 16-year-olds. Campaigners have been arguing this week that the armed forces bill is an ideal opportunity to change that law and stop recruiting under 18s. But the Ministry of Defence is resisting that. Rachel Taylor is from the Coalition to Stop the Use of Child Soldiers. Rachel Taylor, thanks for your time today. What's the problem with 16-year-olds joining up? What we're concerned about is the fact that at present a 16-year-old joining the armed forces is bound by a six-year legal commitment, which will see them deployed onto the front line as soon as they turn 18. What we're saying is that somebody who's too young to play a war video game cannot be expected to make that kind of commitment and sacrifice. In no other area of law can a 16-year-old make a commitment that has such far-reaching consequences, and we think it's wrong for the MOD to hold a young person to that decision when their life could be at stake. Presumably there is a way, though, if when they get to 18 that they no longer want to be there, they decide it was the wrong decision, that there's a way out for them. No, absolutely not. And that's one of the things that many people don't realise. If you enlist at 16 or 17, your right to leave expires after the first six months in training. A lot of people don't realise that when they sign up. They don't realise they're going to be in there until they're 22. And a lot of parents don't realise that when they give permission. And the six months, you argue, is not long enough to make your mind up? No, we're saying if you're under 18... You know, if you were in college, if you were studying, you have the right to keep on changing your mind until you find what you're, what's really suitable for you, what you're interested in. And to bind someone when they're 16 to six years of commitment, that's a very... Some, pe- some people at the age of 16 are bound to a lifetime of commitment with children. 
Sure, and, and people do all mature at different rates, but under national law, there's no other area in which a 16-year-old could make such a binding commitment. Uh, Christopher, what's your take on this? You can get out of it. Um, and if you go and talk to people in the MOD and you say to them, uh, you, you get a 16-year-old, and lo- lo- none of us should be able to think we can judge the state of 16-year-olds today. Um, if you, you, They tell me that if, if we've got a 16-year-old and we get to 17, 18... It's not working. We all know when it's not working. It's best that they go. Listen, um, I, I know that people... Can I interject there? In go a minute. I, I'll tell you something. If you were commanding a battalion, you wouldn't want uh, a nutter of an 18-year-old in, in your battalion, nor would you want a reluctant soldier, and it's as simple as that, and they can move them elsewhere, and they don't necessarily, therefore, send them off to Afghanistan or wherever you are. Well, let's, let's briefly hear from a couple of supporters of the current system, starting with Colonel Richard Camp. The whole purpose of the, the various treaties and, the, and the, indeed the coalition for preventing underage soldiers is, is all to do with the, the often the forced enslavement of child soldiers in countries like Africa and, uh, and the Middle East and, and in Asia, where where this has been a massive problem over many years and people have been horrendously treated, often as young as 9 and 10. Um, And, of course, the situation here is nothing like it. The British soldiers are allowed to enlist at the age of 16 where they undergo a very, very effective course of education and training which develops them. And the former head of the Army, General Sir Richard Dannett, says that education offered to teenage recruits is highly valuable. The college at Harrogate gives a very good year of... Education. Yes, of course, there is some military training, but it's also character training. It's it's sort of citizenship training as well. And I think that gives people a particularly good opportunity. And I think it'd be a shame just because of um, legislation to keep child soldiers off the front line, and we don't do that anyway. That that opportunity for education and an opportunity within a structured environment of the Foundation College at um, Harrogate, for example, is denied to youngsters. Uh, Rachel Taylor, uh, on the recruitment age, it's not just Britain. America does it as well, and so does Australia. Not at 16, no, that's not correct. But but there are teenage recruits, and there are other countries that do it, but we're not talking about the kind of child soldiers that you might see in Chad or Somalia. It's completely different things. You're not suggesting that there's any kind of uh, abuse of the same level in terms of human rights, though. I think the situation in every country is always different, but the point is that... Britain's policy puts it alongside fewer than 20 other countries, and that includes Iran, North Korea, and Zimbabwe. If other countries were of the opinion that recruiting at 16 was a good thing for young people, more of them would be doing it. But the point is no other country in Europe recruits at 16, and the United Nations has explicitly called on Britain to change its policy. So so is the former head of the army completely wrong when he suggests it might be a good thing to provide further education for youngsters who might otherwise be unemployed? I think young people at the age of 16, they have a lot of options for education. At 16, you can, you're perfectly entitled to carry on in full-time free education. You can do your A-levels, you can do vocational study if the academic route isn't for you. So I think it's misleading to imply that the only option for education is in the armed forces because you also pay a heavy price if you take your education that way. It's a six-year commitment and it means deployment when you're 18, which means you could be killed or permanently injured. Uh, so, I mean, one of your, your bugbears is, is the fact that you sign up and then you're stuck and you can't change your mind when you might realise that you don't actually want to go to the front line. And um, Exactly how do you think the rules should be changed? We're saying that all recruitment of under-18s needs to be phased out and that in the meantime, those who are in the forces under the age of 18 should be given discharge as of right, right up until their 18th birthday. And I think it's essential to highlight that you do not have a right to leave up until your 18th birthday, as some people have suggested. Just before Christmas, we saw the court-martial appeal of Daniel Cross 
um, who enlisted at 16 and by 19 was so desperate to be discharged that he got a friend to run over his leg. If it was true that under-18s could easily get a discharge on request, we wouldn't see people taking such drastic action. All right, Rachel Taylor from the Coalition to Stop the Use of Child Soldiers. Thanks for your time. Thank you. This is BFBS SIGREP. The flawed deal for two new aircraft carriers has come to symbolise everything that's wrong with the way the defence budget is spent. Even though one of those carriers will be immediately mothballed and the other won't carry strike aircraft for a decade, both will still be built because the government's contract with BAE Systems means it would cost even more to cancel. The contract signed by the MOD has been released after a freedom of information request, or at least some of it has. Uh, Christopher, it doesn't seem the MOD has been very free with the information on this yeah, one, does it? I, I mean, not all of it's come out. And what they've done, they've taken a black magic marker <laughs> and cut out all the embarrassing numbers. No, it, it, basically it's this. Uh, Navy the argument wanted, being it was commercial confidentiality. Well, yes, I mean, yeah, but isn't it always? The Navy wanted two carriers. The Navy uh, kept ticking boxes and got the carrier deal through, largely with uh, BAE Systems, at such a price that to cancel it would have cost more money than to continue with it. And you quite could argue frankly, the Navy was really rather cunning on this one, Oh, the you? Navy... Oh, the, the chiefs of staff, the naval chiefs... I was, talk, I was talking to one of the sea lords, and he said uh, they thought it was rather good. They knew that once that had gone through, they were going to keep the carriers. If you keep the carriers, you this then keep the frigates... This inter-service rivalry is rife, isn't it? Uh, Living well, on strong, I hey? hope so. I hope so. <laughs> That's what keeps it fun. No, but, but the, the important bit about this is that the MOD said we refuse to give you the numbers because of commercial uh, confidentiality, yes. But some of it has started to come out. For example, um, people are now saying that uh, BAE Systems has got such a deal on this that the MOD has actually got to guarantee hourly wage rates, etc. What's going to happen now... For how many and how much, we don't know, do we? uh, We will know, and we'll know it very shortly, uh, because it's not so much the House of Commons Defence Committee... And these are the these are the these are the watchdogs mm. for you and I for the services themselves. House of Common Defence Committee is looking at it, but most important, the Public Affair, uh, Public Accounts Committee is looking at it, and it's going over. So it's all going to come out in the wash. Uh, a lot of it will come out, but what we do know is that the MOD makes these mistakes. It, it, it is full of horlicks. The whole thing <laughs> is, is, is absolute rubbish. But that supposedly is going to change because Lord Levine is now looking at the whole procurement and acquisition system, and once he gets that on, on, on going, the carrier contracts could not happen again, it says here. Enter Bernard Gray, the new head of defence procurement. He's got quite a job. It can't happen again. It shouldn't have again on his watch. He's got quite a job on his hands, hasn't he? Bernard Gray, if you, anybody wants to do so, go back about 14 months. Uh, you, can, you can Google it or whatever you do and look at the Bernard Gray report. It is the most explicit report of what should happen to procurement and acquisition. He was the guy that wrote the report. That's why he's being given this job. He's got only one problem. Go and on. that he doesn't know enough about controlling the system. And I've seen this before with other people, including Lord Levine. Once they say, say, start saying, look, this is how we've got to do it. This is what we've got to do. You've got to get rid of that. The system, the system of Sir Humphreys starts to close up. And eventually they get to the minister. And the minister says, well, Bernard Gray says we've got to do this. Therefore, we're going to uh, chop that uh, program. 
And the minister is told, it's a very courageous decision, minister. So not only has he got to do this, sort the whole procurement out, he's also got to change the system, has he, in, in order to be able to do his job? He's got to change the culture. And that is and the most difficult. And is he the man to do that, do you think? Uh, there's nobody else at the moment. If there's anybody who knows the system better, I've not met him. OK. Uh, as you were saying, the National Audit Office is investigating the deal. Um, the man in charge, no, though... No, public, a public affairs committee. They're the m- m- most important people. But, but one man in charge, though, who's, who's instrumental in this, Amos Morse, he was one of the men who signed the contract in the first place, wasn't he? Yeah. It's um, a bit of a bit of a bit of a mess all of this. Well, this it? is this is the sort of collegiate system, isn't it? <laughs> every time you um, every, you don't you don't find a toad on every stone, but you do find yet another official. You do find yet another another numbers it ca- man. It comes that's what's the, happening. It, it comes back to the whole thing we were talking about about looking at the the military covenant. I mean, it all just goes around in circles. It's the same people with different hats on at the end of the day. It is absolutely true. I mean, if you I was mentioning Lord Levine, who was actually going to look at the whole system. I remember Lord Levine getting that job for the first time in 1984 when Michael Heseltine gave it to him and he hit brick wall after brick wall after brick wall. But when it comes back to it, you've got to know the insiders. Do you remember the RBS man who, who walked off with a shed load of money? Mm. I always thought he ought to be Chancellor because he was the man who knew how to do it. <laughs> and this is what Bernard You know, uh, it's ideas do. like this, Christopher, that, that make this programme so interesting. Uh, let's move on because um, the question is, could Britain soon be capable of launching cyber attacks on hostile nations? We've already been warned threats to computer systems are one of the biggest dangers we face and that we're not fully prepared. Well, now, the head of the armed forces, General Sir David Richards, has said he wants to set up a cyber command, which would not only defend, but could launch its own attacks. So, uh, Christopher, um, talking about launching attacks, it sounds all sounds rather... Great stuff, isn't it? Well, shocking in a way. Why is it shocking? It's I mean, do you, you know what's been happening in Iran with their nuclear facility? People say, we're going to bomb them because you're building nuclear weapons. What's been happening is the, uh, the Israelis, and we're not far away from this sort of deal, they've been jamming the computer systems of the nuclear scientists there. You said that. I didn't say that. You didn't say that. I didn't say that. That's what I'm told, right? <laughs> but uh, um, the point is, if you, well, OK, if you take just this past week, but, 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 just take the past week in, in NATO, for example. NATO people in Brussels tell me that in the average last year, the Chinese the Chinese were hacking into NATO computers on an average of 14 times a week. Mm. Well, when these kind of... I mean, that, that's, that's a shocking, shocking thing, if, if it's true. When you hear of these kind of attacks, what is actually happening? What, what, what are they doing? What, what can they do exactly? You can do... Well, uh, looking for information, that's the first thing. Looking com- for confirmation of the information they've already got. Also and what that, what that might be, for example, about, about equipment, about missiles, about... Uh, uh, procedures. Or... Procedures especially. Suppose you go to war. You want to know every stage that people rehearse going to war. You want to get to that point where you get nuclear release. You want to know what that is. And you want to know it because if you do go to war, you want to know what the procedures are locally. But that's the extreme case. You want to know small things. T- I mean, terribly tiny things. Where's the com- who's got the commercial contract to p- supply, for example, the lifts that would take aircraft up to, the, uh, up to a flight deck? These are the things they want to know. They want to know how much it costs, because that way you can actually get into the same business yourself. Have, having said that, if Britain were to be in the position where it might feasibly launch some kind of t- cyber attack, I mean, General Sir David Richards himself is saying uh, the nature of warfare is going to change completely perhaps in the next 10 years or so it does seem to change the ground rules it's already fundamentally. changing it's already changing i mean what is looking what I mean, he's you looking think for of in this cyber country? attacks as being something that might be a, a little bit underhand in a yeah. way in terms of the the, the, 
the laws. Cyber warfare isn't simply about jamming, hacking, or whatever. It's the truth that future warfare, or in fact the warfare that's going on now, relies entirely upon cyber uh, war. It's entirely upon IT. And it's really IT that's going to rule future battlefields, etc. It's not going to be the way that we do things now, even in the 21st century. There is a command in the United States. The British would like to put up that command. If you go back to October, there was some money put up. I can't remember what it was. I think it was 500 million, which doesn't sound very much. But 500 million, just to appoint a four-star that could take this on. Mm. There are two things that that will threaten the security of the world in future. One is global warming because of population uh, movements and and disasters. And the second is so-called cyber warfare. I think cyber warfare is is, is too flashy a term, but it's all about who controls IT and how much you control your own IT. Go into... Go into Afghanistan today and see how much is done on IT. You mentioned China very briefly. Uh, the Vice Premier has been in London this week, um, looking good in terms of trade deals. Um, what's going on behind the scenes there? Lee Kuak Kuan, who is the Assistant uh, Prime Minister and is probably going to be the future leader of China, they're trying to get the British to lift the embargo, the technical embargo, Uh, on exports to China. The British say they will not lift those exports. The Chinese need those exports. China is actually buying up the world at the moment, including debts. It's Mm. it's becoming the great shark of the uh, the world. It's got sort of 72%, for example, controlling interest in most of the oil. But the important thing is the British are saying no. The French are saying release... Uh, let's lift the EU embargo we can sell more to the Chinese the British are saying no one of the reasons they're saying no if we start selling technology to the Chinese we're selling information the Americans then turn around and say you're selling that to the Chinese therefore we're not going to give you the information you need to update the uh, the uh, Trident system Chris have you got 10 seconds to tell us what's happening next week Go and have a look at that thing I was talking about earlier uh, and get the idea of where we're going to get the new numbers and who's going to be getting the numbers on, for example, the, the carrier system. We find out where the cock-ups are, and that's what we're beginning to look at next week. Public Accounts Committee and the House of Commons Defence Committee. Good people. Christopher, as are you. Thank you very much for your time this week. It's been great speaking to you, and thanks to all of our guests, and thanks for listening. To SITREP, we'll be back at the same time next week. Bye-bye for now. DAB Digital Radio and Satellite TV in the UK. Online and on air around the world. This is the Forces Station. BFBS.